We're back in the book of Philippians, but you knew that, maybe. All right, men. Or women. Right? Yeah. If you have an aluminum block engine, <laughs> thank you, I feel better than that. And you need to tighten some of the bolts after changing the head gasket, what kind of tool do you use? Torque wrench. Booyah! There you go. That's a torque wrench in case you didn't know what one looked like. Now, if you need to install a steel pipe with threading on the end of it, and you got to, you know, muckle something right on there and tune it right around, you know, to get it nice and tight, what kind of a tool do you use? What? A pipe wrench. Yes. It's got different teeth on it that grip that big pipe and turn it. Huh. Oh, yeah. I almost sound like I've done this stuff. <laughs> I have tried everything. And I've learned, call somebody else. If you have to adjust a screw that has a hex head on it, what kind of a tool do you use? Well, a hex head screwdriver or an Allen wrench. That's what it's called. I'm sorry. But what if someone needs an attitude adjustment? Honey, she says a baseball bat. Why did that? Why was that the first thing that came to you? Sweet lumps of butter. You know what? We're Ben. Get up here. You're doing the message today. I'm just. I'm done. Man, oh man. Okay. Well, we are in the book of Philippians. Yes, we are. Believe it or not. And it's commonly known to be Paul's most positive epistle. It's a name for a letter. That doesn't mean they're the wives of the apostles. Okay? Just so you know that. An epistle's in a letter. And it's his most positive, upbeat letter of any that he's written to any of the churches with which he was associated. Now, what should be noteworthy but routinely isn't, I mean, generally speaking across the board, is the fact that this most encouraging letter of Paul's is that he's writing from the unenviable place of being under house arrest by the civil magistrates. But secondly, that even though this is about, meaning this letter and how positive it is, is the closest Paul ever gets to being Saint Sunshine. Thank you. He doesn't shy away from warning the believers at Philippi that suffering for being faithful is an expected consequence of following Jesus. His language, though, tends to get lost a little bit in the translation from the Koine Greek to our English translation. Because what it says much more clearly in the original is that suffering because of the Christian faith, because of determining, an individual determining to follow Jesus, that suffering is going to be part and parcel of the walk of faith. And in fact, even more than that, suffering is considered a gift. And I'm talking about suffering now for following Jesus Christ. The last time we were together in this book, 
I finished with chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. Let me go back there. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Again, you can get that message on, the, uh, on our website. Our challenge this morning is to take Paul's inspired by God counsel to the first century church and to overlay what is the timely, the timeless principles rather, and the timeless wisdom of God for our lives today. Paul continues his words of what I would call, they're definitely encouraging, but I would call it sober encouragement to the Philippians. And what I want you to make note of is don't let the chapter break between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Remember, chapter breaks are not inspired. They were added way, 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 way later in order to just kind of make it easier to handle things and find things in where they were. So don't let the chapter break between chapter 1 and chapter 2 cause you to abandon chapter 1. Reading chapter 2 now as if Paul is switching gears or he's changing subjects and he's on to something new. This flows It's really part and parcel of the exact same thing that Paul's talking about and will be as we go into chapter 2. Chapter 2 then begins with, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and it is the therefore, even though it says, again, chapter 2, verse 1, that connects this inextricably right back to the previous verse, verses 29 and 30, but also to the whole section there that Paul's talking about suffering. And what Paul is going to do, even after all the pleasantries of chapter 1 concerning the Philippian church, Paul's going to get real about life as a Christ follower. And it's sobering. It's encouraging, but it's sobering. In other words, chapter 1 ends on more of a, a philosophical note, I guess, rather than a practical one. So what Paul's going to do in chapter 2 is he's going to take chapter 1 there, but he's going to move to a practical application of what must flow out of the philosophical views in chapter 1 or the theological viewpoint of chapter 1. Putting that in a little simpler term, perhaps, Paul is going to punctuate the transformational aspect of the truth of Christ in one's life. More simply still, he will underscore the necessity of the follower of Christ, of the Christian, allowing Jesus to actually make differences in the person's life who is saying they are following him. uh, Last week, Dr. Nanakin noted that the goal of all missions is, in fact, discipleship, which has as its goal transformation, meaning personal life change. It doesn't mean just acquiring information and knowledge and then doing nothing with it. The goal of missions is discipleship, which means transformation of one's life. What is found in many Christian churches today increasingly are messages and a whole whole view of ministry that is life-affirming instead of life-transforming. The main purpose of Christianity today too often seems to be more on what God can do for you instead of what you can do for God. Let me explain. No time. Let me sum up. Yeah, see? uh I I know where to touch you. 
Princess Bride, for those of you wondering, what is going on? Would you say, I know, right? Would you say that our American culture, that our, our social landscape, if I can put it that way, would you say that we have moved closer to reflecting the God of the Bible or deflecting the God of the Bible? This isn't a hard question. <laughs> All right. Obviously, it's the latter. And yet, 83% of Americans still today profess to be Christians, followers of Christ. By definition, and that's an important little uh, preface there, meaning not by what anybody thinks or what culture has, has uh, uh, made it mean to be a Christian, but what the Bible declares in the fullness and comprehensively, by definition, a Christian is one who follows the Christ of Scripture, which... That, by definition, means the way Jesus sees the world is the way that the Christian must see the world. It means the way Jesus lived is the way that the Christian must live. And that what Jesus believes and taught is what the Christian must believe and teach. Christianity is transformational. Not it might be transformational, it is transformational, and if it isn't, it isn't Christian faith. So, using old-fashioned common sense math, not common core math, if 83% of the population of this country have been what I just explained now, explained, explained about what it means to be a Christian, if 83% of our population has been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit in following Jesus, their ballot, this is just an illustration. There he goes, getting political again. It's just an example, okay, to help clarify things. And this is right in front of us because it's that time of the, the wonderful season called voting and all that. Their ballot box decisions would be consistent with the views, the values, the morals, and the principles of the God of the Bible. That is not debatable. And why is that a true statement that I just made? It's because the Holy Spirit is given to followers of Christ to transform them from people living for themselves to people leaving, living for their Creator. Christianity, again, is always life-transforming rather than life-affirming. So, If America was truly 83% Christian, America would be a vastly different nation from what it is today. But it isn't different because it is not truly Christian. A big part of the problem, it's not the only problem, but the big part of the problem is that more and more churches today, I've already alluded to this, are indiscriminately, meaning across the board, life-affirming, and they're very, very light on transformation. What I mean by indiscriminately life-affirming is that the minister's intent 
is to give his or her flock a never-ending dose of positive energy from the pulpit, to put it in a popular expression that I hear more and more today. The minister's guiding principle is making sure that no one feels like their life choices are being examined or questioned and judged, much less putting the expectation on them to make changes in those life choices which reflect the heart and the mind of God. With that intent, the pages of Scripture are turned using a scalpel, excising the parts of any pages that might possibly cause someone to think that they are being singled out or even questioned. <gasps> so Scripture is sliced and diced to avoid giving anyone offense. The end result of this is that instead of being conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus by the power of Christ, this is from Romans chapter 8, verse 29, the duped, Religious person is presented a counterfeit gospel, which is emotionally appealing, believing that they are following Jesus by following their own heart's desire. Know thyself, and to thine own self be true. As the serpent slithers away on that one. That's what got man into trouble in the first place. Eve determined, in my heart, ooh, that looks good and delicious. I must be true to my heart. Yeah. I wonder if we get to have words with those two. Anyway. Well, what is the, this rather, this whole ministry thrust is the exact opposite of Jesus says, when he states in Luke 17.33 is where it's recorded, whoever seeks to keep his life, We'll lose it. And whoever loses his life, other references to this add, for my sake, will save it. Paul, again, writing to the believers at the church in Rome, puts it this way. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That is, don't adopt the values and the ideas of what's popular in culture. In fact, you need to be changed, transformed. This is not a, hey, here's a suggestion. This is a command from God on high through the Apostle Paul. This is, if we were in the King James, uh, thou shalt. It's a command. Now, what does this mean in practical terms? Again, this is only an illustration because it's right in front of us because of the time of year. If you would put up the picture there of the voter guide. And we still, by the way, if you haven't gotten one and you desire one, there's still some out there in the entryway. What this is, because I don't know how well that shows up, shows up well down here, I don't know, is it has all the, the major candidates for the position of governor, U.S. Senate, U.S. Congress, uh, CD1 and CD2. And then on this side, it gives us abortion, just a handful of sort of uh, uh, important issues, abortion, Second Amendment, religious conscience, traditional marriage, educational choice, tax rejection. And then it goes down by name, and it shows what, whether the individual candidate is opposing it or would support it. In just a minute or less, 
you can see at a glance whose worldview, whose way of looking at life is being affected in all the right ways by the values of God versus by their own or by culture or by those who have put money into their coffers to see that they get elected and they owe them favors. And you know all the whole shtick about politics at its worst form. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be changed. If this is the way you think, you better change it if you are a Christ follower. When I was in high school, in sociology class, I took the side of defending abortion. Actually, it was assigned to me. But I did. Now, I could continue on through life, post-Christ, and say, well, you know, it's a woman's right, and yeah, blah, 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 blah. You know, yeah, it's a little, it's a blah, 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 and the ectoplasm, and it means nothing, you know. But no, the Spirit of God says, no, you've got to change that view, buckwheat, if you expect to be my follower. Because you are in the process by the Holy Spirit and power of God of being changed to looking like me in your ideas, in your mindsets, in your, the way you, you live and act and think and all of that. Be transformed. The command. And then he says, and this is the how-to. We just had the, the command. And the how-to is the next part of the verse that says, by the, reason, the way you're going to do this is by the renewing of your mind. That, by the way, grammatically, is in what's called a present continuous. Meaning it's not a one-time thing. It is a continuous process. This is what it means to grow in the love and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to submit ourselves, our wills, our ideas, our ideologies unto him. When we see something clearly pointed in Scripture, if it conflicts with what I've always been taught or what I understand or or I just feel in my gut or my heart that it's the right thing to do, it doesn't matter. You need to change it on orders of God Almighty. It's the how-to. We have to jettison our thoughts for his thoughts. And the result of this, the rest of the verse in Romans 12, 2, is the result is that you will prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let me put this whole verse together, and I'm going to use the contemporary English version just because it's, I like the way it it, it just puts it because it's easy to understand. Don't be like the people of this world, but let God change the way you think. Then you will know how to do everything that is good and pleasing to him. That's good. That's easy. That's simple. I get that. Now, from a slightly different angle, the Christian who is being transformed will have a daily walk of faith that is going to reveal the truthfulness of God's plans and purposes for you. In other words, by the way you think, act, and live, and the way that's carried out in life, you will be confirming to any and all that, yeah, this is true, and that I am verifying and validating the power of the Holy Spirit in my life to become more like Jesus. Paul realizing that what he has just laid on the Philippian Christians was not lighthearted. He brings this heavily theological work back to the practical reality 
that the only place the Christian's life can find the kind of strength and the kind of support and the kind of encouragement and empowerment that he needs to be like Jesus, when you consider all that life can throw at us, is no less than God himself. And this is not just New Testament. Let me go to the Old Testament in a pre-incarnational context, in a before Christ walked the earth contents test. Psalm 61, David is writing. Hear my cry, O God, give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. God, you are my everything, and without you I am lost and I am nothing. So God, be my God and help me to be the person you want me to be. And then Paul writes to Philippians now from a New Testament vantage point, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. I'm going to have to stop there. Yes, the time went quickly. So, do not be conformed to this world. Why can a nation proclaim that 83% of its citizenry are Christians and vote for some of the most evil, the most wicked, the most heinous brutality and barbarity in the region of moral values and social values and financial values and all of this, how can they dare claim to be a follower of Christ? Paul says, and and other writers of Scripture, no, it can't be. Whatever you are, I don't know, but it's not a Christ follower because you will be transformed as your mind is renewed by these words that are holy and infallible and inerrant and authoritative. Let me have you stand. Father in heaven, I pray, O God, though our time was brief together, you would just let those words from your apostle, Lord, to the church at Rome in a holy way, in a good way, nag us to think upon all the things, Lord, that we have accepted. And not even even actively, but just passively that are so contrary to what you have clearly revealed to us. Lord, your church in America is so, so wayward. Today, oh God, I'm not concerned about the church in America. I'm concerned about faith. Lord, do not let us be conformed, but to be changed by the power of your Spirit through what you've revealed to us in your words for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, again, we'll dismiss the uh, ladies and ask the men to remain behind. Thank you.